Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. In this episode is the second in our two-parter on land. Last time we talked about land ownership, but today we dive into how land can be used differently to support a net zero transition. We'll dig into the ways that land is being used locally to combat the climate emergency, the barriers we still face in effective net zero land use, and some of the big opportunities for the future. We're joined by some really exciting guests. First, we have Guy Shrubsole, who is an environmental and rewilding campaigner and author of the book, Who Owns England? We often think of, or are led to believe that rewilding is about getting rid of people out of the landscape, and, and that's really not the case. It's about repositioning our relationship with nature. It's about letting nature do uh, what it wants to do in terms of restoring natural processes, but it doesn't mean that that's to the exclusion of increasing economic activity. We're also joined by Dr. Alona Armstrong, a senior lecturer in energy and environmental sciences at Lancaster University. Alona's work looks at how local and renewable energy production can be done in a way that also delivers environmental benefits like supporting biodiversity. We talk about land use, but also like land use management. So you can have a solar park that's managed in one way, maybe it's grazed. It's really kind of trying to understand how management impacts affect the outcome, not just the overall land use. Meanwhile, Alan McDonnell from Trees for Life shares how land can be used creatively to better serve both the climate and communities. You need a big picture and you need a big answer to the problems we face now because we've left it so long. It's about scale, it's about nature at scale and about thinking about using that for people together and that kind of shared energy I think is our, our way out of this mess. We have a dedicated Twitter handle, and if you haven't already done so, go and find us and follow us at localzeropod to get involved with the discussions there. Also, please email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you need more than 280 characters to share your thoughts. Right, well, I guess we better bring back Fraser. Fraser, you're looking very perky at the moment in your yellow Scotland shirt. <laughs> I'm perky for now, yeah. Radiant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling, I'm excited. I'm feeling very, very hopeful for the Scotland game tonight, which will have happened by the time this episode comes out. So 
either I'm I'm ecstatic or a little bit disappointed at how the result went. But looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Let's hope it's a good result. And of course, we'll we'll record two different episodes: one where you're very perky, yeah. <laughs> and the other where you're really quite sad. But uh, yeah, no, good good luck to you all. Uh, of course, England play tonight as well, so we may have to record four episodes where we have <laughs> happy English, happy Scots, and vice versa. You'll know if if there's if there's no episodes next week. It went bad for everyone. Yes, we, we're all taking a <laughs> bit of a break. So what's been happening with you guys? So I've been on holiday since we last recorded. I've had a glorious week in the Lake District with my family. Absolutely wonderful. Amazing. Excellent. Amazing. Yeah. Anywhere, anywhere nice? Everywhere nice. I mean, it's absolutely stunning down there. But I have to say, our last episode really got into my head. And every time the family and I got out on the lake and, you know, in our little canoes and stuff paddling around, all I could think about was who owns this lake and yeah. who owns that <laughs> hill over there and who determines what boats can come on the lake. Yeah, it was yeah. probably in my head. You've been bitten by the land bug. So this is where, you know, I've talked, talking to folk before and they, you know, they say it always comes back to land. Uh, eventually all roads lead back to who owns that building or that, that plot. So yeah, I'm glad. And did, did you get any further with that, Becky? Did you understand who owned the lake? Well, no, not at all. I also wasn't really, you know, looking it up kind of trying to wrestle uh, four-year-old twins into and out of wetsuits. So <laughs> you know, You're never off the clock, Becky. I, I suspect, I mean, it's actually amazing how much of the lakes is owned by a single landowner. That, that's the National Trust. I mean, particularly around Windermere in that area. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting question. And, and we were actually staying further north and staying on a farm. So obviously, like, got an insight into who owned that sort of patch of land. And, and they had a small wildlife lake and lots of animals going around. So yeah. obviously that was able to be used in a way that that they wanted to to support kind of their own uh, their own goals but yeah as you say just a tiny proportion of the whole lake district well and that's it and that's what today's discussion is all about so how do we use land differently so the first episode was very much about who owns the land because as malcolm coombe was uh, pointing to whoever owns the land has the whip hand over how that land is used okay so today we're talking about well how should you use that land it's it's in the headlines so often but again and we refer to it in the in the first land episode too, it you'd be amazed at how much on your doorstep around the corner from you is whether that's contested or being put to use or whatever it might be. It's everywhere. It's not just big chunks of the Lake District. It's not just the Highlands. It's the little the little bit of green. It's my own garden actually. So like <laughs> this is a constant argument between me and my husband. Yeah. Is that he's like so keen on the lawnmower I'm actually possibly in trouble now because he started listening to Local Zero but um, <laughs> you know wants to always have like lovely uh, grass not very high and I just want him to leave it and I want to yeah. rewild it he wants he wants centre court at Wimbledon I, I know <laughs> yeah. I know the feeling but so listen we've got a couple of questions uh, last last week I asked you questions about who owns the UK or who owns England as I was referring to Guy's book who we've got as a guest later this these questions are more about how do we use the UK? So if I were to ask you how much of the UK's land is given over to farming and agriculture, what would you say? As a percentage. As a share, yep. 30. Fraser? I'll go, I'll go a little bit lower, 25. Way off, both of you. 70%, oh, 70%. Wow. That's terrible, actually. Oh, my goodness. Yep, it's a huge amount. And if I then asked you how much of the UK was given over to forestry, what would you say? There's only 30% left to play with, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then it's got, it's, yeah, it's got to be small, like 3 4% maybe? Becky? I was going for 10. Now I feel like I'm way off. Go on. Go on, Matt. 
higher, 13%. Wow. Okay. And actually, if you were to answer that question, Becky, in 1980, you'd have been about right. It was 9% in 1980, and we've, we, it was slowly climbing Well, that, that's what I was thinking of, clearly. Of course, yes. Yeah, you no, didn't I, specify your time frame. <laughs> I should have said 2021, my fault. Absolutely on me, that. But yeah, so land is slowly changing. But Committee on Climate Change is a sixth carbon budget. Land use is a big part of this, and they're really wanting to... Uh, shave offers as much in terms of carbon emissions as possible. So how do you think they can do that? What are the big ticket items, do you reckon? Well, I'm guessing we probably, I mean, want larger amounts of land for forestry. Like we know the benefits that trees can bring. Yep. Fraser, let's not be planting any of your fake grass from last time. <laughs> <laughs> but, fake plastic yeah. trees. <laughs> Hashtag Radiohead. I think the trees will do the job. <laughs> but I guess... If, you know, and I haven't actually looked at the types of, of agriculture that we have, but you've got to realize that cattle have significant emissions associated with them. I mean, actually, all animal farming has significant emissions. So, yeah. you know, I'm assuming that the best way to do that would be to change the way in which we use our land. So d- diet's a really interesting one. If you reduce emissions, um, one of the key ways of doing that is to, uh, is diet change and, and the CCC, Climate Change Committee, point to, by 2030, a 20% reduction in meat and dairy consumption. Now, not only does that withdraw many of these animals that produce emissions and the feedstock that goes in, it can actually free up quite a lot of land in, in doing so. Then the question is, well, what could you do with that land? Could you do something more exciting, uh, more beneficial you know, for the environment? So the, the other factors you, know, you can look at, Restoration of the peatlands is a huge one. There are opportunities to grow energy crops. Really, the question is, if you were to reduce the amount of land given over to agriculture, what else could you do? Because agriculture is 70%, right? So that's the biggest thing to kind of reduce. So I think this raises a really interesting question because obviously, you know, agriculture brings in income to those people that own that land in a way that I am assuming forestry doesn't. Well, I think that that's that's a, a really difficult question to answer, and I think hopefully our, our guests can can offer a bit of insight on that. But I guess the point is about making all land productive and financially viable, and a big part of that. Uh, rewilding Britain made this point is that you've got to attach a value to that land. You can't just simply say that land because it's you know grasslands or uh, forest doesn't have an inherent value around biodiversity and carbon. But the other thing to say is, and we often talk about climate change purely from a mitigation perspective, how we manage the land, how we use the land is really important in terms of climate change adaptation as well. So flood risk is a huge one. And there's been some really exciting studies from DEFRA where they've done, they've kind of done pilot schemes about how you can green the uplands and forests and uh, restore the peatlands and how that reduces the flood risk down the valley. I'm reminded of that video that I think went viral on YouTube some years ago around the trophic cascades in the um, Yellowstone Park and the small change of introducing wolves, but effectively changing the nature of the grazing animals there and changing the the sorts of plants that were there had fundamental changes on the kind of wider the wider landscape and ecosystem. And so I think what you're saying is, is okay, well, we're, we're not talking about introducing wolves here, but by shifting the sorts of ways in which we're using the land has a much further reaching impact than we might necessarily think of initially. And it's not always just, it's not always just environmental, right? It's not always just the, the, the ecosystem either. There are, there are ways that land's being used now mm-hmm. that 
brings a whole a whole lot more like when we talked about the sort of the, the financial or the economic side of it brings a whole lot more benefit to to people and, and communities as well so there are multiple multiple reasons for for changing the way we do it and the way that we use land and multiple benefits to be to be had if we're doing it in the right ways and the sort of in the considered ways and before we bring our guests in i think i just wanted to kind of give a little example to that phrase i'm often reminded of uh whiteley's wind farm just south of glasgow the one of the biggest in europe if not the biggest and you know ostensibly that was set up as a wind farm to generate power for glasgow and its environs actually if you go there it's not what the people use it for i mean yes they'll consume the power but they're there to walk their dogs ride their bikes you got horses there you've got everything and it's a day out and it's people taking exercise and really enjoying the benefits of that so so absolutely yeah it's the wider benefits it's really fascinating and i, I just want to touch back on a point that you raised matt which was around diet and the interplay between how we use our land and and what we're using it for and if we're using it for agriculture and the fact that there's this kind of relationship then yeah. with what we're eating and what we're doing so you know to what extent do we think that this has to be something that's kind of international? Because presumably, you know, right now, a lot of the cheeses, for example, that we see in our supermarkets, they come from the UK. I'm always seeing, you know, cheeses from the UK. Okay, we see some from overseas as well, but there's a lot of UK-based produce in UK supermarkets. If we weren't using that land in the same way and producing the same sort of produce, we could see a rise in in imports of these things if people aren't changing their diet. And I think that, you know, probably not one for today because it's such a hard topic, but perhaps something we'll have to come back to in future episodes is looking at this interplay and and the willingness of people to change their diet and adopt these, you know, recommendations from the CCC. And, you know, unexpected consequences are absolutely to be avoided. But I think there's a useful sort of tidbit from the CCC's report, which points to the key link between what we do locally and in our own homes and neighbourhoods versus how the land is used elsewhere. If we were to raise our ambition in terms of moving away from meat, so instead of the 20% reduction I mentioned before, if we're pointing directly at 28% reduction by 2035, so what's that? You know, Almost a third less meat by 2035, that would free up a fifth more land of agricultural production. So a fifth, you know, 70%, we're talking a huge swathe of the UK, you know, a couple of counties worth, if not more. And the question is, and it's an exciting one, what do we do with that land? How do we use it? And this, Becky, transfers not just nationally, but internationally, and how we use our land elsewhere. Wow, well, we better bring in our guests and get on with this show. There's so much to cover. Absolutely, bring them in. Hello, uh, my name's Alona Armstrong. I work at Lancaster Environment Centre, where I research how renewable energy infrastructure and ecosystems interact. And I do this with a positive ethos. Land use change for renewables is changing and how can we do it in the best way possible? Hello, uh, my name's Guy Shrubsall. I'm an environmental campaigner and an author of the book, Who Owns England? Which is about land ownership, who owns it and how we use it. So welcome, Alona and Guy. Absolute pleasure to have you on board. Uh, we've been wanting to have you both along for a little while now. And of course, this is the second in a two-parter. The first episode was about uh, land ownership, who owns Britain and what, what that means for our battle against climate change and other biodiversity issues. But today is very much about land use and what we should do with the land that we own. So a fairly broad question, I think, to begin with. Uh, how important is the way in which we manage our land for climate change. 
is this a real critical issue and one that should be very much at the forefront of our minds or is this a secondary issue uh, versus some of the other things we covered on the pod? For me, it's, it's absolutely critical. So the carbon is cycling between the like land, oceans and the atmosphere. So what happens on the land, how we manage it, determines whether it's a source or a sink for carbon. And how we use it kind of determines carbon cycling processes at that place. So what we do with our land is central to tackling climate change. I absolutely agree with everything Alan has just said. Um, and obviously, it's uh, how we use land is, is fundamental also to the other environmental crises we face in terms of the collapse of species and, and other, other environmental issues like pollution uh, and eutrophication of rivers and so on. So it's very crucial, but also it's something that I think has often been overlooked. It's often left till the very end of international negotiations, given uh, complex acronyms like LULUCF, land use, land use change and forestry, or you know, left until the very end uh, in terms of policy making by national governments. They sort of put it in the too difficult tray as something that they'd rather tackle much further down the line. So it's a really interesting point that I think you're both raising. And, you know, I completely agree. It feels like, you know, net zero can be such a big part of our national conversation. And then it's almost like these other things are kind of bolted onto the side rather than recognizing the complete interdependence of these different objectives. And so I guess I'm just quite interested in in how some of these might be competing objectives or whether they're things that we can address together so you know can we can we manage our land in a way that can address climate change and support our net zero agenda whilst also supporting these other very important objectives around our kind of wider environmental services and ecosystem services so alone I know you've done some work in this space particularly around solar so what what have you seen from your research well, I mean, first of all, at a very high level, I really hope we can, because otherwise I think we're in trouble. <laughs> um, and and uh, fixing the climate crisis and and making the ecological kind of crisis worse is simply not an option we have. You know, both are really urgent. And it's been really good in the last couple of years to see the rise of the ecological emergency as, as, as well as the climate crisis. I look at renewable energy and mostly solar parks, kind of land-based photovoltaic energy production. What our work as, as a group is focused on is what ecological implications that land use change has, you know, kind of what, what does happen to land and et- ecological processes, natural capital, ecosystem services, biodiversity, if we take an area of land and convert it to, to a solar park. And within that, it's there's, there's also a lot of, you know, we talk about land use, but also like land use management. So you can have a solar park that's managed in one way, maybe it's grazed, and you can have a solar park that's not grazed. You can have one that's managed for biodiversity or they cannot be managed for biodiversity. So it's really kind of trying to understand how management impacts affect the outcome, not just the overall land use, if that makes sense. Earlier in our chat, Matt and I were talking about if you're shifting away from using land from, say, agriculture to using land for other purposes, what could those other purposes be? And so do you see the potential to to do something on land that can deliver multiple positive outcomes? Yes, I think I think a crucial part of how we use land better in future is is getting to grips with multifunctionality. And I think a lot of trends in land use, particularly in the 20th century, was towards monocultures, effectively, was towards monoculture, agriculture, uh, and sort of some of those older forms of land use, which could also be used to greater effect in the future, were kind of forgotten. I'm thinking of things here like agroforestry, for example, 
uh, a kind of more more recent name for um, something that's actually got a very long history in the UK and in other countries, uh, which is the way in which um, farmers have traditionally combined trees and hedges and copses and woods as part of uh, the farmed environment. And I think we've seen a, a big decline in Britain of the use of trees in the farm landscape, the kind of use of trees and hedgerows. So I think in the future, kind of getting getting a more multifunctional landscape back, that you know, nature corridors, wildlife corridors through agroforestry, silviculture, all these sorts of things, and, and would obviously help resolve both the climate and the ecological emergency. So if this is something that we used to do, why are we not doing that anymore? Was there a reason that we that these changes started to happen and that we started to focus more on kind of these single objectives on our land? Well, I think I think there have been obviously some bigger economic drivers. Uh, you know, the, the the trend towards modern plantation forestry was partly driven by the severe timber shortage that Britain faced in the aftermath of World War One. There was a shift towards production of, of wood solely for timber and for pulp and paper. And that's obviously being driven by by big trends towards the need, you know greater need and greater demand for for those sorts of products in Britain. I mean, mo- modern agricultural subsidies incentivise farmers keeping their land free of of what the cap has called ineligible features. In other words, trees and hedgerows. Fascinating. And Alona, turning I think sharply towards energy and looking at energy production, uh, just just as an example here. How, and I like guys framing their multifunctionality. Is this something that we can build in to our energy generation, but also maybe the places where we consume energy too? Yeah, for for, for sure. And I can I completely agree with Guy. The only way to go forward is for for land to be used for multiple uses, and that's often the only way things stack up. That's probably the only way we can produce everything we need: food, fuel, fiber, space for recreation, aesthetical value from the amount of land we have. As you know, as our population grows and our resource demands per capita so I think yeah I completely agree we, we definitely have to do that and I think there is a lot of scope to do that with renewable energy there's there's an, a, an immense amount of scope to you know manage solar parks for multiple uses so in the UK they're often producing that much lead, needed low carbon electricity and they're being grazed so still contributing to food production and the farming system some are managed for biodiversity creation of habitats and and kind of boosting the, the state of our ecosystems not so much i've not heard about it in the UK but overseas in um Spain and southern France they're there's concepts called agrivoltaics where they're essentially PV arrays with crops grown underneath. And that's because um, in, in those areas, the intensity of the sunlight is often too high and they'll be doing intercropping or they'll be cropping under shade cloth. So there's loads of ways. And, and for me, one of the reasons I, I focus on PV technology is it's such a flexible technology, scale of deployment. There's so much scope to really design systems with the technology and with the energy gains in mind, but also with the ecological systems in mind. So don't just design it to produce the most electricity, try to combine, you know, design it with thinking, what's this going to do for crop growth underneath or for biodiversity? And I think that's how you're going to get the win-wins we really need. It feels like what you're proposing there and what Guy's proposing around this multifunctional land use is a little bit different to what uh, the, the kind of tone that the Climate Change Committee's sixth, sixth Carbon Budget Report presented, which was very much about, you know, roughly 70% of land is used for agriculture. If we can change our diet, we can shrink that amount and do something else with it. If we can make it more efficient agricultural practice, we can shrink that land again, do something different, often carbon sequestration through afforestation. 
I find this really interesting, this multifunctional land use. So I just wanted to ask, and you've given some great examples there alone around the energy sector. Guy, is there anything there that you can point to maybe outside of the energy sector about how we can use these multifunctional spaces and you can see different sectors kind of colliding within uh, you know, a single hectare? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think the Committee on Climate Change uh, often does some fantastic work and some, some brilliant reports, and, and it's been great to see them do these recent reports on land use. But I think, yeah, I think they would, I would I would share that critique of, of, of their recent report that it doesn't really factor in uh, as much as they could do uh, these sort of changed changed patterns of, of land use in terms of multifunctionality. I think they probably underestimate the potential for. Agroforestry, um, they do they do mention it in there, um, and but so with some uncertainties about about what uh, carbon storage potential it could deliver. I think you know as one example, I think I've already given is is really around agroforestry. So I don't want to go on about that any much more. But I think it is certainly a really interesting area where um, you know farmers can combine uh, the use of you know the, the grazing of, of livestock, perhaps reduced uh, reduced grazing intensity amongst trees uh, such as wood wood pasture systems that uh, used to be much more prevalent in the uplands. But maybe I think it is also important to kind of recognise that, yes, we do need to um, potentially repurpose some land that is predominantly agricultural uh, nowadays and and do more to restore nature on it. And, uh, you know, I think there are large parts of very low productivity farmland in Britain where there is a role for um, a reduction in in grazing intensity, not necessarily uh, taking all grazing off of that land, but perhaps a change in uh, stocking densities, a change in the sorts of livestock being grazed, so perhaps a shift from quite so many sheep on some of our upland areas to hardy, hardy and native breeds of cattle uh, who are perhaps better suited to being able to do the sorts of naturalistic and conservation grazing that we really are after. And uh, and also recognising that these are, even if the even if we're talking about areas which are rewilding these are not necessarily areas where there's no economic activity going on it just may mean that there's less extractive economic activity going on clearly there's quite a lot of opportunity to to make these changes and to look at using land not just differently but incorporating multiple things into the into the same kind of area of land this starts to raise a really big question about the people involved and who needs to be involved to create these changes and, and how? And Guy, I've heard you talk about policy um, and incentives. And so presumably there's there's a role for policymakers here. Is there a role for um, engaging, say, farmers in new ways? Is there upskilling that's needed? I mean, who do we really need to get involved to create these changes? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's all sorts of things that need to happen, I think. Um, you know, one of those is through the um, ongoing post-Brexit shift in the way in which farm payments are made and the rules around them. Another is, I think, through taking inspiration from the fantastic stuff being done by particularly the community land movement in Scotland. I think there's also potentially more to be done around developing land use strategies or land use plans and seeing them as a kind of either held by a community or held by local government, uh, possibly with a, a national level land use plan or strategy as well, and that, that this is something that could better guide uh, spatial planning, not just of the built environment, which is obviously the focus of most of the existing planning systems in across Britain, but actually something that also had some guidance to give on wider land use uh, around obviously the 80% or so of land that isn't the built environment, but that is 
you know, is, is, is in farming or forestry in some way or other. Okay, Fraser here, taking over things for a while, as usual, because I've been hearing from one project in the Scottish Highlands that is a real role model for how to repurpose land so that it works better for both the environment and communities. Yeah, I'm Alan McDonald. I'm Programme Development Manager with Trees for Life. It's a charity dedicated to rewilding the Scottish Highlands. For us, that's about allowing nature to develop under, under its own processes, through natural processes, but also involving people in that. So the communities that live here and the people that own this land can, um, can thrive together with it. So how long has Trees for Life been, been operating for? How did, it, how did it come into being? Uh, Trees for Life has existed as a formal entity since 1993, but our founder, Alan Watson Featherstone, he began work in the late 80s, and he was basically inspired by visiting Glen Affric, seeing the amazing pine wood there, and recognising it was under threat and wanted to do something about it. So he, he created Trees for Life as, uh, as a charity that would, uh, that would restore that forest. By bringing trees back, then you start to, you start to uh, link together uh, nutrient cycles again, soil process start to work, and you can kind of get the, you can get a positive spiral into how nature can, uh, can develop across a landscape. So it definitely has a, a clear environmental benefit and a clear benefit for when we're talking about the things that we need to combat the climate emergency. But you mentioned there as well, Alan, that it, there's a lot of a sort of a people focus, a community focus there. Could you talk a little bit more about that, about how you involve uh, local people and people in general within within Trees for Life? Yeah, it, as I said, Trees for Life has always been quite people oriented in the way that you know, our volunteers gave people the chance to uh, to work with us and contribute to to our vision of rewilding. And particularly in the last few years, we've become much more um, outward focused as well and looking at the communities around uh, where we work, looking at how we can um, help people and work with communities to kind of to align with their objectives more. So specifically with that, we're thinking about what kind of nature-based business opportunities and employment opportunities could we start to work towards in the future? And how could rewilding play a part in that? One of the most ambitious projects we're working on at the minute currently goes by the name of East West Wild. And that is a proposal to have a, a landscape scale collaboration uh, between nature interests like ourselves, but with communities and with the landowners to see nature as a catalyst for the long-term social and economic regeneration uh, of communities alongside the regeneration of the landscape. All the emphasis and priority now being put onto the climate emergency uh, on, uh, on carbon sequestration through land use change, primarily through peatland restoration uh, and through woodland creation uh, to, to uh, block up some of the key emission sources of carbon dioxide uh, from our landscape, from peatlands, and to, and to restart the storage processes there. And from a, a woodland and forest point of view, to uh, to, to get sequestration going in, so drawing carbon down into soil and into timber. In that way, there's a lot still to understand about that, but it's a huge opportunity because that's recognised as as our pathway at national level, at UK level, to get to net zero, so we can go carbon negative through with parts of our landscape through land use change. So huge, huge plans for the future. It sounds like a lot of a lot of ambition still there. It's a massive project, but a lot, a lot still to do. What do you see as the key sort of opportunities, and I guess the the key barriers to to expanding what you do going forward? So much of this is about people and the relationships between people across this landscape, and and it's easy to get drawn into discussions of um, why people disagree about what the future should be. One of the things I think we we're putting much more emphasis on is about well. 
there's so much that people have in common about what they want for that future. Everybody values nature. People see the, the, the closeness of the relationship with people and the connection between people and nature and people in the landscape is something that stretches back through time, you know, not just centuries, millennia, forever. Songs have been people in the land. So what should that look like in the future? If we're looking ahead 30 years, we're looking ahead further down the track, what kind of steps should we be taking now to build actually a, a vision of the future we can share? More conversations we have like that, more ideas come forward, more energy comes into, into, the, into the situation. So this project in particular is about trying to create that, to say that positive upward spiral of energy and, uh, and resource. It's about that restoration of nature at scale, whether you want to call that rewilding or call it something else. Seeing that as an opportunity, seeing it as an imperative, whether that's for the, the climate emergency or for the crisis in nature and biodiversity, something we all value and something to respond to at scale. There's a bit of a, an in-house mantra, Trees for Life's developed a book, it says, go big or go home. You need a big picture and you need a big answer to the problems we face now, because this is, you know, we've left it so long. Um, it's, it's about scale, it's about nature at scale and about thinking about using that for people together and that kind of shared energy, I think, is our, is our, our way out of this mess. Thanks so much to Alan from Trees for Life in the Scottish Highlands. Back now to Becky and Matt's chat with Guy and Alona. Matt is getting into how we can better use land to mitigate against rising temperatures due to climate change. So I was reading into land use, you know, and I think the pod is probably guilty of this. We talk almost exclusively about climate change mitigation. We probably don't pay enough attention to climate change adaptation. And if you know, the various models and scenarios are to believe, which they, they should, um, is that, you know, we're looking at at least a couple of degrees warming anthropogenically, regardless of whether we meet our, our climate change targets or not, it could be a lot worse. So should we be thinking about land use management in, you know, as a sort of triple headed beast, uh, one where, you know, we're, we're not just mitigating climate change, not just enhancing biodiversity, but also trying to manage our land in a way which is more resilient to climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's something I started looking at, I guess, when um, when we got some of the very particularly bad floods uh, that struck Britain back in 2013 and 2014. That that was a real eye-opener, I think, for, for, for me and, and perhaps for obviously um, the kind of wider policy world, hopefully, that... Um, Climate change is is a very real uh, and present danger to to Britain in terms of its impacts on people, society, infrastructure, and so on. Adaptation needs to be um, hardwired into um, the way in which we use our land as well. And, and uh, as, as again, another Committee on Climate Change report recently uh, noted, there's very little work being done by the UK government, at least, to advance that um, you know it's sort of being put on the back burner because oh we're committed to net zero so we're doing all that we need to about climate change well yeah as you say unfortunately that's not the case we've got a few degrees potentially already in the pipeline at least you know of, of warming and clearly we're already seeing at one degree uh, above uh, pre-industrial levels the impacts of that in terms of flood risk uh, potentially increased storm surges or increased severity of storm surges because sea level rise is ongoing and as the, as the water warms up and as there's a there's a real uh, issue around, particularly around 
what is often termed management realignment of bits of the coast. But it, to some, uh, particularly, of course, communities living on the coast in those areas would be, would be seen as abandonment uh, of sea defences. But can, if done in the right way, with, with, with concern for and, and proper um, transition measures done for communities most at risk, could be uh, a really interesting way in which uh, land uses uh, change takes place in the UK in the future. So, you know, there are lots of areas where, you know, actually nature could be d- doing much more to provide natural flood defences such as more salt marshes. Um, they, they can only really be, develop again if we tackle what we, what's called coastal squeeze, where basically hard flood defences that have been built, concrete flood defences and seawalls that have been built in previous decades are allowed to be taken away uh, and that land realigned. But obviously, if there are communities that have grown up in those areas since those flood defences were put in place, that needs to be thought about incredibly carefully. And those communities are, are, are you know, given funds and support to consider their future and take those into their own hands. Excellent. And Alona, is this anything um, that your research has covered? Not explicitly, but from a like at a very basic level, the more diverse, you know, the higher biodiversity of a system, the more resilient it is to environmental change. So if you can improve biodiversity, um, you're going to have a system that's more resilient in the face of climate change. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Matt, I know you, you talked about the three headed beast, but I'm wondering if there are like maybe four or five or six heads in here because, you know, it's not all land is the same, quite clearly. And we've talked about, you know, Alona, I was absolutely fascinated when you were talking about the different groups that are getting involved, particularly the industry groups. You wouldn't normally expect to have an interest um, in these some of these areas. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm guessing there are a number of reasons why why they do. But clearly there are a whole lot of, you know, different sorts of stakeholders in this. And a lot of the land may not be accessible to, uh, you know, local communities or so on, whereas other land is clearly very, you know, right on your doorstep. And there seems to be a lot of potential engagement um, that, you know, communities can have with it and and ways in which it could be used, not just to support, I guess, resilience in the face of climate emergencies, but also to potentially support those communities in other ways. So, you know, what about some of the uh, wider social benefits that it can create? I remember reading some work, gosh, this is years ago, and I'm going to completely forget who wrote it, about the the importance of, you know, being able to get connected to nature for mental well-being. And so I can, I'm starting to see all of these kind of potential additional benefits if we could just do things in different ways and really support not just kind of the climate agenda or environmental agenda, but, but wider agenda. So, I mean, Alona getting really, really kind of bringing it back to local because solar farms are often very much part of a local energy ecosystem that can engage communities. I mean, do you see some of these potential benefits coming through or can you see a way in which changing this approach to how we're using our land can support, I guess, a fairer, better future in, in a number of different areas? So, so I know like the first field, the first solar park I worked at, that was, I think it was the first community owned solar park in the UK. Um, and they had a really strong community focus and they ran educational trips for schools. Like every summer they had this marquee up and portable toilets because there were just events all through the summer, schools visits, public open days, all sorts of activity going on. So there were 
there were definitely things things happening there. And then there was another there's another organization called Power to Change, who I spoke with a couple of years ago now. So so essentially they were that they, they do lots of things, but one of the things they were doing was buying solar parks and then kind of selling them to the community to, to increase community ownership. And we went down to meet uh, a community group who kind of were, were part of managing this this solar park down in I think Devon. And they were really keen to get involved in, you know, promoting biodiversity on their site and all the kind of good stuff that came out with them. And in fact, we might just have to clarify. Um, so you've talked about solar parks. Perhaps you could just explain for people listening that don't know what a solar park is, that might have all sorts of kind of bizarre imagery going on in their heads right now. What, what do you mean when you say solar park? So essentially, they are ground-mounted photovoltaic cells. You'll, you'll see them often by the sides of motorways, so they'll be long rows and they'll be at a slant same tech that's on those retro calculators but bigger and in a field <laughs> i'm sure i've seen them countless times when i've driven down to cornwall to visit my family um guy are you seeing this in the work that you're doing i mean i guess that's a little bit um a different context but are you seeing the engagement of kind of communities or the the opportunity to use land to support these wider kind of social goals as well as um environmental outcomes yeah definitely um so uh, rewilding britain for example did a, did a recent study uh, looking at um rewilding projects about 20 or so rewilding projects across england and they found that there's been a 47 percent increase in job numbers uh, on those wow. estates or those projects as a result so we often think of or, or are led to believe that rewilding is about pushing people out and getting rid of people out the landscape and, and that's really not the case it's you know, it's about repositioning our relationship with nature. It's about letting nature do uh, more of its, what it wants to do in terms of restoring natural processes. But it doesn't mean that that's to the exclusion of uh, increasing economic activity. Uh, you know, there's also loads of more volunteering opportunities as a result of these projects. I think I think there's a, also a really interesting and increasing dialogue going on about uh, repeopling alongside rewilding particularly in Scotland, where, of course, you know, there is a, a, a horrendous history of the Highland clearances um, and then uh, concerns about what might happen if, you know, if we were to see uh, estates uh, in the future who still own big chunks of the Highlands trying to, you know, engage in a further period of clearance um, because of, you know, in the name of, for example, rewilding. But I think actually a lot of estates are starting to now take, uh, you know, be, be very aware of that. And the Bunloyt estate, for example, in Scotland is, is is starting up this dialogue about repeopling and that their plan is also about trying to restore jobs to the area. To wrap up, I think we've got quite an important question for our listeners and to bring it back to the local level. What is it you believe our listeners can do to improve the way that we use and manage our land? Uh, whether that's as a household, as a community, whether it's as somebody who holds an investment somewhere, how should people be changing the decisions that they make on a day-to-day -day basis? For me, I think individuals have done and communities have done so much over the last couple of years to really raise the profile of climate and ecological emergencies and, and put it on the agenda from school strikes, extinction rebellion, kind of petitioning councils or institutional businesses to make either net zero commitments or to declare climate and ecolo ecological emergencies. That's happened and that's been a result of petitioning, protesting, hard work, civil disobedience. It's all in there. But there's been so much progress over the last couple of years um, that, that I think p people have already done a lot. I think other mechanisms to, to, to do it is, you know, 
planning applications if there's going to be any change um, in land then most things have to have a planning application and that's an opportunity to people to input and they can fall back on this increasingly supportive environmental policy the need for biodiversity net, net gain the desire for environmental net gain etc and they can use that in their in their kind of responses to planning planning consultations and then there's loads of stuff we can all do as individuals, being aware of our province of provenance of our food and the implications of what we eat, where we travel, how we travel. Excellent. Thank you, Alona. And and the final word to you, Guy, then, please. Alona's given some really good examples there of things people can do. I, I'd add just one more, which is um, there was a wonderful uh, piece recently written by Sophie Yeo for the Ink Cap Journal, which is a, a great newsletter about nature. Uh, and she did an investigation into how local authorities were using the land that they that they own, uh, including whether local authorities had rewilding plans for how they were using the land. So one thing I would encourage people to do is to contact their councils uh, and ask them about whether they're planning to rewild their land or how are they starting to use their, their, you know, their grass verges for nature? You know, are they allowing them to reseed with wildflowers or are they just mowing them to within an inch of their life every every few weeks? So getting involved in local land use uh, would be my recommendation. So Guy and Alona, thank you very much for your time. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I hope you're able to make a couple of minutes just to join us for the next part of our show, which is future or fiction with our ever-reliable and ever-creative Fraser Stewart. Thanks very much, Matt. Yes, so for our guests and for the uninitiated, Future or Fiction is a game that we play every show where I present the panel with a new technological innovation and you have to decide if you think it's real, i.e. if you think it's the future, or if you think I've pulled it out my backside, in which case you think it's fiction. So today's technology is called In the Genes. That's In the Genes. So we all know that buying new clothes can make you feel like a whole new person. But how about this? Scientists have designed wearable nano-generation technology that harnesses the kinetic energy created by clothing as the wearer moves. The generators can be woven into clothing items where energy is then created through friction, which can then, sorry, created through friction, not fiction, which can then be used to power small devices like smartwatches and mobile phones. I promise that was not a deliberate Freudian slip by any stretch there. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? So Fraser. Becky. A question for you. This wouldn't be future or fiction without a question from me. So we've got these little devices in, it woven into our clothes, which when we move are generating electricity, and that electricity can be used to power smartwatch. Yeah. Do I need to plug my swat smartwatch into my jumper? There must be some kind of connection there, yeah. <laughs> it has to connect somehow, right? I've just got this image, Fraser, of you know smartphone or smartwatch powering down and me having to get up and doing a few laps around my house just to get it working. <laughs> is, is this the idea? Do you remember, I don't know, I want to say it must have been in the 90s where you had your wallet on a big chain attached to your jeans. Yeah. So I've got this vision of all yeah. these chains coming off your jeans to attach well, we're, to your we're, devices. We're going to have to hand over to our, our guests for a little bit of clarity on this. Uh, Alona, do, do, do we think this is baloney or, or not? Well, I know you can get those kinetic watches, can't you? So, so I know that kind of technology kind of exists, but 
And I know that, you know, we should wash our clothes less because that's more sustainable because the, you know, the chemical use, the energy use, the water use. But like electrical stuff that you do have to wash eventually, I'm going to say fiction. Yeah, you wouldn't want to wash that pair of jeans, would you? The big, the big cost of it. Guy, Guy, what do we reckon? Oh, oh I'm really torn now because uh, obviously Alona is definitely the energy expert here. I, 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 um, I'm sure I'd heard something about some trainers that repowered by the use of kinetic energy or just by using them. But yeah, actually, yeah, surely a pair of jeans can't do the same thing. So probably fiction. Probably fiction. Okay, okay. Were those your own light-up trainers, Guy, that you were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not cool enough to own a pair of trainers like that. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. This is a difficult one. I am immediately wanted to ask the question, what's wrong with a battery and what's wrong with a power socket? But um, I don't know, Fraser, mm-hmm. I've asked these questions mm-hmm. before and, you know, turned out they were silly questions. I implore everyone to remember every episode is that, one, I am not a technical person. I don't know. Sometimes I make stuff up that sounds good. The second thing is that not everything is going to be answered for in this case. Some of the technologies we've had in the past have been very early stage. Some of them have been completely made up. But I also think you're starting to blur the line for me between fact and fiction because sometimes I hear these and I don't know whether I've dreamt them or whether you've said them in a previous episode. (laughs) And I just don't know what's true anymore. But listen, we're going to have to have some scores on the doors. So, uh, Becky, what are you going for? Yeah, so I... I think I'm going to have to push for fiction. I do. I, I mean, I didn't even think about washing the clothes. I mean, I promise I do wash my own clothes. That hadn't entered my mind. And I feel like that's a very strong argument. And like, while I definitely know that we can have, you know, you can create those technologies to turn that movement into electricity, as we've seen in some of the technologies we've already had on the show, I just don't see it happening in our clothes because I can't see how you would get that energy to your devices or yeah as the very good point that you raised Alona like what would that mean for the longevity of your clothes so I am a hundred percent fiction on this one Alona fiction were you I was fiction guy I think you were fiction too were you yeah me too me too okay well listen just 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 for the hell of it, I'm going future. Okay, so that's that's three on one. I don't like those odds. <laughs> so, Matt, you're, you're, you're going to be bold. You're going to stick with future. I'm going bold. Yeah, it sound, again, sounds like one of these ridiculous Silicon Valley get-you-rich-quick schemes. So, yeah. Yeah. Is this, is this one of the things where everyone talks about just engineers that are incapable of designing something that works in the real world? Is yeah. that what we're saying? The, ne- the next big thing. <laughs> okay, so... The answer is... It's the future. Oh, yes. In the genes is the future. (laughs) Scientists based at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh are currently prototyping a technology that can be woven into items of clothing. While it's still at the very early stages, they reckon that they will have it market ready as early as 2026-27. Good stuff. Right, well, that's... Matt, that's not... Matt, how smug do you feel? I feel great. Now? And I'll, I'll feel a lot better when I get that pair of Levi jeans in 2026 as well. 
Well, listen, a big thank you to our guests there. Uh, we've had a, had a lot of fun. Um, and just a, a quick note to say, if you're wanting to uh, connect and communicate about the, the episode today, please reach out uh, via uh, social media. We are at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. Um, we're also www.localzeropod.com if you want to connect with us there too. But in the meantime, a big thank you to our guests. Thanks, Thanks very much. And we look forward to having you along soon. Uh, you're always welcome back. So until then, take care. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.